you. Uh, please open up to the Gospel of Luke. The Gospel of Luke in chapter 24. We're going to be looking at the first 12 verses of uh, the resurrection account uh, according to Luke. You know, as our, as our children approached the ripe age of about two, uh, there was uh, a phrase that Julie and I had hoped would be put off for a couple years or a couple decades or whatever it would be. In all honesty, um, they, when they were little, they had no idea what they were saying. For the younger three, they had probably just picked up on it from, from an older sibling, and it usually happened when we gave them an instruction or tried to teach them something or just told them about anything. When uh, we would say what we would say, they'd look up at us with those beautiful blue eyes that our kids have. They would say, why? Why? And at first, it's really cute. But after the first two or three days or so, of hearing the question over and over and over again. Uh, anyone that has been a parent knows that that question can really have one of, of three different results. It can either uh, come with a very gentle answer, it can come with a frustrated response, or it can come with cluelessness because you really have no idea how to answer that question that they're asking. Um, and when our children ask the question why, it's easy to forget that they're not asking us in order to annoy or to frustrate us or make our days more complicated. Rather, they're asking in order to learn how the world that they were born into works. They want to know uh, why things happen, and, and they want to know a purpose. They want to know a meaning behind things. And, and, they're, and in a lot of ways, they're pint-sized versions of the same questions that you and I also have. Um, none of us like doing things or experiencing things or even learning things just for the sake of learning, experiencing, or doing things. We as people, God has given to us a nature to learn and a nature to have purpose and meaning and reasons why our lives are the way they are and how things work. And oftentimes when we approach Easter or uh, even Christianity in general for that matter, many of us understand cognitively that Jesus died for our sins. In fact, if you ask a lot of people on the street, how, how, does, uh, how are you saved? Sometimes they'll say either I'm a good person or they'll say that Jesus died for me. They, they get that. But the one thing that makes us scratch our heads quite often is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And we leave that out as if it's just a side note because it can be a bit weird or it, we can't explain what it means. Uh, or does it have any meaning for us in 2017? Does the resurrection have any relevance for you and me today? But in our passage, Luke tells us the historical account of the empty tomb and through it we find assurance we find advocacy, and we find an appearance of our future. So let's read the text together in the Gospel of Luke, starting in uh, chapter 24, verse 1. This is what Luke writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. But on the first day of the week, at early dawn, they went to the tomb, 
taking the spices that they had prepared and they had found the stone was rolled away from the tomb. But when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. And while they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. And as they were, uh, as they were frightened and bowed with their faces to the ground, the men said to them, why do you seek the living among the dead? He's not here, but he's risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise? And they remembered his words. And returning from the tomb, they had told all these things to the eleven and to all the rest. Now it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary, the mother of James, the other, and the other women with them who told these things to the apostles. But the words seemed to them, that is the apostles, an idle tale. And they didn't believe them. But Peter rose and ran to the tomb. Stooping and looking in, he saw the linen cloths by themselves. And he went home marveling what had happened. Let's pray. Father, your word is truth. The account that we read of here, this is indeed history. It's indisputable that uh, based on these, um, these events, uh, Lord, that you indeed did rise from the grave. And so, Father, would you help our hearts to believe it today, Lord? Would you do that, in our, do, do that miracle in our lives today that we would see the glory of the resurrection, that we would live for it, and, Lord, that we would give our lives to it? And may Christ be honored as we look at these things. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen. Well, the resurrection of Jesus Christ really gives us three applications to see why this, this resurrection is both relevant and meaningful for us today. And the first one is that the resurrection gives us assurance of forgiveness, righteousness, and salvation. The resurrection gives us assurance. The women had gone to the tomb very, very early in the morning uh, to, to anoint Jesus' body with spices and different oils. This was a very customary thing to do in the ancient world. It was a sign of respect. It was a sign of honor for those who had, who had died. But when the women got to the, near the tomb, they saw something that they did not expect— they saw that the, that the tomb had already been uh, rolled open. They knew that it was going to be open eventually for them to anoint, but it had already been opened. Uh, were they expected? Did, did something a little more sketchy perhaps happen? When they got there, there was no body. Immediately, you can understand their, the horror that these women had felt. Were there grave robbers here? Did the Jewish leaders come and steal Jesus' body in order to contort some weird story about Jesus? Did the Romans take him? And as they're pondering these things, two majestic angels show up in front of them and remind them what they should have remembered. They should have remembered what Jesus had told them a while back, that he was going to die and be raised from the dead. You would think that if someone told you, hey, in a year or so, I'm going to die, and guess what? I'm going to rise from the dead. You'd remember that. But these women and the apostles were blinded to the words, and their memories were tainted from what Jesus had said. But when the angel reminded them, immediately they, they knew Jesus had risen from the dead. He was indeed alive. They don't see him yet, but they knew what this meant. 
and that it was real. They, they went to the disciples who uh, at first didn't believe them. And in first century Palestine, that would have completely made sense. If you were a woman in Jesus' time, your testimony wouldn't have even been admissible in a court. And so for the uh, disciples, this was just some old wives' tale. This was just silliness. They couldn't believe that they were telling the truth, except for one. Well, two if you read another account. But in this, in this particular account here, Peter takes those words to heart and he runs to the tomb as fast as he can and he sees the exact same thing that the women saw. Absolutely nothing other than the cloths that Jesus had been wrapped up in, folded up nicely and put where his body would have been lying. And it was from there that, that Peter knew that if Jesus rose, if he did, that, uh, that forgiveness was certain. He knew that God was gracious. He knew that God was merciful. He knew that God was slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. But he also knew that God was a just God. He knew that God had his wrath on sin, and he knew that, that apart from any grace of God, he would have to bear the penalty for his sin, and he was aware of the general sins that he struggled with, and he was also aware that it was not even four days ago that he denied that he even knew this Jesus. Peter knew that he needed forgiveness and that Jesus could offer it. He wrote about it in his own letter, in fact. In 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 18, he wrote, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. He knew that Jesus took the punishment that he deserved, but without the resurrection, Peter could have no forgiveness. Jesus suffered on the cross, but without coming through that death victorious in resurrection, he could not show that he had power over this death and this sin. He could not indeed secure anything for you and me. But as it is, he rose. The same question, the same could be said about our righteousness. To be righteous means to have a right standing with a person or an institution. In this case, we're talking about a right standing with God. In Romans chapter 3, Paul quotes the Old Testament and it applies to every single person that's ever lived, save Jesus Christ, that there is no one who is good, there is no one who is righteous. None of us have a right standing with God in and of ourselves. God cannot be in the presence of sin and because we are sinful because it's part of our nature we cannot be in the presence of God but Jesus Jesus was 100% righteous he was in full communion with the father never having sinned, never having done wrong. 
And when he died and rose from the grave, he gave us the opportunity by his grace to not have our righteousness renewed so that we could be in God's presence, but rather he uh, would give us his very righteousness. The righteousness that Jesus had was traded for our sinfulness. We got his righteousness. He got our sinfulness. And it's not enough for him to have just died and not rose because if he had just died, all he would have done would have just been wiping the slate clean for us. But if we want to experience eternal life with God in heaven one day, a clean slate cannot be good enough. Because what happens when you and I and people who are like us get something of a clean slate, you know what we tend to do? We make it dirty again. And so we would need to constantly be cleaning ourselves up again and again and again and again. Instead, Christ didn't just give us a clean plate. He gave us the fullness of his goodness attributed to us on our behalf. Jesus died and rose, which gave uh, gave us the greatness of his righteousness. And it goes beyond his death. He has so much of it that it goes beyond his resurrection. But it is given to every single person who trusts in him by faith. And all this is directly tied to our salvation. Without the resurrection of Jesus, we could not be saved. We needed a Savior who could not only take away our sin, but also secure our safety from sin. What would it be like if Jesus could only take away the, the, the sin that we had before we believed and not the sin after we believed? We'd all be dead in our sins. But Jesus did rise, proving his power over sin and death. And because he secured victory in this way, Jesus meets you and I in a very real place. There is hope for you and I. There is hope for those of us who live in constant guilt, remembering those things that happened maybe five years ago, maybe 10 years ago, maybe 15 years ago, and it still eats away at our conscience, and there's nothing that we can do to get rid of it except Jesus Christ has come to take away that guilt from us. He has, no longer do we need to live in bitterness or fear or envy or or shame from whatever it is that happened to us or whatever it is that we've done that plagues us because Christ can have power in your life over those things when you trust in him through faith. Sure, sin will creep up from time and time again, but it no longer has mastery over us. Christ now does. And this could only happen because Christ rose from the grave proving his power. So second, the resurrection gives us an advocate with the Father. 
The resurrection gives us an advocate with the Father. An advocate is someone who supports a cause or a policy. A personal advocate is someone who fights on the behalf of, of someone else. An advocate of someone is, is somebody who speaks on behalf of those who have no authority to speak on their own. In 1 John 2, chapter 1, it says something very interesting about who Jesus is on our behalf to God the Father. He writes, I am writing these things so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, and anyone that's been in the faith longer than five minutes knows that this still happens, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, who? The righteous one. This is a great and precious truth of the Christian faith, but how it... But how is it dependent on the resurrection? Well, it's dependent on the resurrection in two ways. First, if Christ has not been raised, he could not stand physically before God the Father and plead our case. If he had died and stayed in the grave, he would not be able to be in front of anybody because he would be, of course, in the ground. But because he did rise from the grave, Jesus is our advocate. And what that means is that we have someone on our team. We have someone with connections. We have someone who not only can be our advocate with God the Father, but is God himself pleading our case. We have someone that is pleading with the Father when we screw up or when we sin to, to remind the Father, Father, don't hold this sin against him, but count it on, put it onto my account. Remember that you were not looking on him or her according to what they've done or who they are. Rather, you're looking on me, Father. We have an advocate that when we pray, Jesus is hearing us and he has a captive audience in God the Father. God the Father can hear our prayers because Jesus is mediating them on our behalf. Second, if Christ has not been raised, then he wouldn't have the right, the right to be our advocate. Scripture points to, to the fact that, that Jesus is fully God and fully man. And if he had just been fully human, like you and like me, he would, not have, uh, he would have had a sinful nature and he couldn't be in God's presence pleading for anyone. If he was only God and not human, he wouldn't have a unique union with his people in which he could connect with. But in his incarnation, what we celebrate at Christmas time, he became both 100% human and 100% divine in one person. As God, he was morally perfect, he was sinless. As a man, he was able to be the, the perfect substitute on our behalf. As fully God, he was raised from the dead by his own power. As fully man, he is able to completely and fully be in God's presence as our representative. 
he has the right to plead with God the Father because he is God himself. As a human, he has a connection with you. He understands you. He's, he's understood the suffering that you have gone through. He, he understands the temptations that we have gone through. And he can meet us in a very uh, special place to be our advocate in that. And he pleads for us. So the resurrection gives us an advocate with the Father. And third and finally, the resurrection gives us an appearance of our future. It's a foretaste of what you and I, who are in Christ, are going to experience one day. Jesus' resurrection not only assures forgiveness and secures him as our, our, our advocate, but there is something uh, that also tells us about a future hope that is present in Jesus' resurrection. The Bible tells us that Jesus' resurrection is not the only resurrection that is going to happen. In fact, Jesus' resurrection, the Bible tells us, is a first fruits of what is to come. And if any of you have ever been farmers or worked in agricultural uh, business before, you would understand that well. To be a first fruit is to be that first crop that, that, that comes out of the ground and comes to full maturity. And that specific crop, that specific fruit, whatever it is, is the prototype of what is to come in the future. And if you see Jesus uh, in, in Scripture being resurrected in perfection, being in, in, in a perfect body, we have something to look forward to. And in the case of Jesus' resurrection in 2 Corinthians, uh, Paul tells us that we who are in Christ, those who trust in him, will be resurrected with him in a like manner. Jesus was raised to a body that, that is imperishable. It's a body that will never decay. He has died once and he will never die again. We will be raised again in physical form, imperishable as well. Whereas right now our bodies mark and bear the burdens of a sinful world. We show scars, sickness, abuse, cancer, brokenness. Folks, this will not be so when we're raised. We will not experience the pain of losing loved ones again. We will not experience the pain, teens, of that person that said what they said to you in the hall that was so hurtful. We will not have the pain of sickness and death because Christ Jesus has secured that great hope for us. We oftentimes t tend to think of, of death in the Christian life as being a time when the soul leaves the body and goes up to heaven, and that's right, that's good. That is what the Bible teaches. Uh, it teaches us that to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. However, that is also biblically incomplete. God created us to be body and soul, and it was never meant to be torn apart from each other. 
So in the resurrection of the dead, those who trust in Christ will be fully reunited with their bodies in greater form, in greater shape than they are now. We could look at heaven as a glorious holding cell for what is to come in the new creation in our future. And not only that, Christ also promises to not just renew us, but renew all of creation itself. It will not be as if when we're, we're resurrected that, and, and we'll be imperishable that we come back into a world where, where things are rotting and things are decaying and we're still seeing death and, and, and sin all around us, but we are fine. Rather, we will be raised to newness of life that's in body and that is in creation, Imagine what this new world will be like when we don't have to worry about the effects of war. We won't have trees that die. We won't have those sorts of things in the world that is to come. Your farm will no longer be subject to drought. This is a future with a hope that we can have because of the resurrection of one man, Jesus Christ. One of my favorite children's books is C.S. Lewis's The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. And in that book, it is a story of four young children who discover by going through uh, an an old wardrobe, an alternative world that's called Narnia. But to their discomfort, Narnia is ruled by this, this wicked queen that is called the White Witch, who by her power has kept this world under her spell for centuries with an eternal winter. And when the children start asking about this, this winter, the, the, the locals tell them that it is, it is absolutely brutal because in, in Narnia, it's always winter, but it's never Christmas. There's never anything good that happens. They're ruled by a, a wicked queen. She is very cruel. And for those creatures who are naturally bent to wickedness or cruelty, they, they find their comfort and they find their shelter in, uh, in, in this, this wicked witch. And for them, life still isn't great, but at least it's better than being one of those people that are completely against this witch. But hope comes to the land of Narnia when there are, are whispers of this majestic lion named Aslan who is coming back to the land. And as he is coming back, the snow is melting, the grass is becoming green, things are being restored to how it should be, and people are believing that, that Aslan is gonna come and he's gonna restore all things, he's gonna take out this witch, and, and all things are gonna be put back, and there's gonna be joy, and there's gonna be greatness again, and it's gonna be Narnia the way it was supposed to be. But that hope is almost dashed into pieces when Aslan is made aware of the fact that one of those four children has committed a deep sin. He has aligned himself with this wicked witch. The boy's name was Edmund, and he did not see the witch for who she was, but rather a beautiful queen who lured him into her uh, graces by his lust of sweets. 
Soon he was in her captivity. He realizes his mistake. He commits treason against her. And his punishment means death. In a surprising twist, Aslan meets up with this witch. And there's an exchange that happens. And Aslan gives his very life for the life of Edmund. Here's the hope of Narnia. The one thing that all of the people are banking, all their hopes, all their fears, all their, uh, their, their expectations are all banking on this one lion. But yet he dies for the sin of this one. Edmund went free and Aslan was put to death. And the powers of darkness that saw the death of Aslan were excited because now that Aslan is out of the way, the white witch has no more resistance. She can finally rule this land in the way that she has meant to. Except for one thing. She did not realize that Aslan had the power over death. He rose from his dead state. He pursued her hard uh, after the white witch, defeating her and defeating all of her enemies. And in doing so, he not only kept Edmund free, who it seemed as if he was going to go back into bondage to her, but, and then he freed the entire land of Narnia and secured that freedom from the wickedness and ensnared it for centuries. Now, C.S. Lewis used the line, the witch in the wardrobe, as an allegory that was meant to exemplify what Christ has done for you and for me both on the on the cross and in his resurrection though he was killed on our behalf he was raised and secured for us a resurrection in our bodies where therefore we are not going to have to be subject to the satanic powers of this world no longer are we going to have to be subject to our sinful nature that we were born with because Christ has defeated it for us Friends, what religion, what philosophy in the world can make up a God like this who comes to earth and is weak and, and, and is frail and dies on behalf of his people? No religion would make that up. It's true because it's true. My children will ask me why all the time. In fact, it happened yesterday in the car quite a few times. It's in their nature to learn. But for those of us who have seen the glory of the resurrected Lord through the scriptures and through changed lives of his people, we no longer have to wonder why about the resurrection. It's revealed to us in scripture. Let us instead praise his glorious grace, that we have assurance, that we have an advocate, and that we have a, an appearance, a down payment, a, a foretaste, if you will, of what is to come. And let us move from that knowledge and serve our Lord Jesus Christ with all of our vigor, with everything that we have. Let us spend ourselves uh, serving him, knowing that the best is yet to come and let us take what we know and praise him and display him to a world that desperately knows him. Let us celebrate this resurrection of the Lord together, brothers and sisters. Let's pray. 
Heavenly Father, your son has risen. He has risen indeed. Lord, and we give him honor and glory. Lord, we could spend all day together uh, magnifying the glorious grace that you have given to us in the resurrection of Jesus. Lord, but for this brief time, it is sufficient. Let us go from here, Lord, to love and to serve you, knowing that indeed Christ has risen from the grave. Lord, that he has defeated death, that no longer are we in bondage to our sin. Lord, no longer do we have to choose those things that are unpleasing to you, but because of Christ, Lord, you have set us free. Let us go in that grace, Lord, just glorifying you, knowing that it's not up to us to be with you, but it's up to what Christ has already done. And Father, let us sing the next song with all gusto, knowing what Christ has done for us. Let us leave this place celebrating with our family and our friends, speaking of the glories of the resurrection, uh, loving on those in our family that might not believe in your resurrection, Lord, so that one day they can glorify uh, Christ as well in that manner, Lord. Lord, you have risen, you have risen in Indeed, hallelujah. Amen.